Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. This is a slightly different format than usual. It's one of our irregular interview episodes and in this episode I am concluding my interview with Seth Skolkowski, who you may know as a YouTuber, author or now as a podcaster. And we are joined later in the interview by Seth's co-host on his new podcast venture, John Hook. And together, the two of them are now producing this podcast, Modern Mythos, which, of course, we'll talk about later in the episode. But before then, let's just wrap up the discussion with Seth. We've touched upon the fact that you're a fiction writer, and let's just get into that a little bit. I mean, you've written, what, about a a half dozen novels now? I've got five novels, uh, and then two books that are short story collections that are sword and sorcery. Oh, right. Fantasy, pulp, thief adventures. Uh, But if you pull me up on, like, Audible or anything, it's like, there's like seven books. It's like, eh, two of them are novels, they're just collections. Right, gotcha. So, this is something I've I've spoken to a number of people I know uh, who are fiction writers as well as being gamers. How do you find being a gamer and writing fiction mesh with each other? Are, are they two very different processes for you, or do does each of them inform the other in some way? They're very different. Right. Um, there's a, a common wisdom that you do come across a lot in a, in a, uh, the the tabletop community that, you know, it's like, well, it's just like writing a book. It's like, no, they're not. Other than the fact that I use words that are English, that's about where the, the similarities end. Yeah. There are ways your brain works that, that help each other. I mean, uh, there have been elements that, that from gaming have gone into my books, mm-hmm. um, of, of cool ideas, which Ashes of Onyx was a clear example of that, where I started pulling in uh, King and Yellow mythology. Well, I learned of all that by by gaming. Yeah. Um, and there, and a lot of people say, it's like, well, there's a lot of Lovecraft inspired. It's like, I don't know how much of it was directly Lovecraft inspired. Yeah, it didn't feel very Lovecraft. You know, I'd, I saw the the chambers, obviously, but yeah, you, I, I think you did a fantastic job of picking out those those chambers elements from, you know, all the, the croft that has accu- accumulated around the King and Yellow uh, since then. Yeah, and uh, so, so they will influence, but it's really a very different part of your brain that, that, mm. that does it. Um, so much of gaming is about your, I want to entertain these five people. I know my audience. Um, and I have to leave things open for them to make their own decisions and, you know, enough rope to hang themselves and, and all that. Well, writing is very much, I am plotting a very specific course. Yeah. And I have to make all the links and I have to make it entertaining at the same time and, and, and all of that. And I have to have, I have to sculpt how the plot works versus, you know, gaming, we kind of him and how we screw around and we, with this one adventure takes us 15 hours to actually complete it. Well, you know, and the story is not the same at all. 
So no, no, no. I, I see it as a very different skill set and very few, um, very few people can move straight from like gaming into writing and it worked naturally. Um, in, in a lot of the different writing groups I've belonged to, you could recognize somebody that actually is like, well, you know, I've written a lot of adventures. Now I'm going to try to write a book. It's like, okay, yeah. cool. You're making all the same mistakes we did. So let me tell you how to fix that stuff because it is a completely <laughs> different part of your brain you need to activate. Oh God, I'm not going to mention the name of the anthology, but I read an anthology many years ago that was obviously put together by gamers. And every story in it felt like the, you know, the transcription of someone's game. And it was the worst fucking fiction I have ever read because what works at a gaming table does not translate to a good story. And, you know, you could sort of tick off, oh, yeah, th this is obviously something that happened to the game. This is how they play characters approached and so on. But actually reading it as fiction, it, it, it was an absolute car crash. And some people have done it and it's worked beautifully like you know mm. uh, dragonland series and all those there's there's some very legendary examples of when it worked nobody knows about the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of ones that did it uh um, yes until you join a writing group and then yes. you get to yes. wallow in the trenches with them as you're learning that yourself yeah so um i keep them very separate i i did at one point uh, try to actually have a game that took place in the same world that I was writing stories in and I was like with, uh, with my black Raven stuff. And I realized I didn't even want them in the same world because, mm. uh, well, part of it was like, I do creative outlets. Like I do this to get over my writer's block on that. And then once I'm done with this, I can go back to that and I can kind of switch gears. And that's how actually how I keep motivated in a lot of ways. But when both of them were taking place in kind of the same universe, it, it didn't give me that refresh of something different. Ah, uh -huh, that's interesting. So I ended up like doing this massive shift where the, the characters in the game went to a different world. So I could then keep mm -hmm. that world for my writing uh, because I just couldn't do both in the same world at the same time without it just feeling like I'm sick of the same <laughs> place. When I spoke to Adrian Tchaikovsky a couple of weeks back, he also made a really interesting point because he ha he did actually uh, develop a setting for a game that he ran at university, which he ended up using as the basis for a series of fantasy books. And uh, but he he made the point, which had never occurred to me before, that it's much much harder to develop a game setting than it is to develop a setting for a book, or at least his experience is, because the players are always going to do the unexpected and you're going to have to put a lot more support in there as opposed to having complete control of how the characters interact with it if you're writing fiction. And does, does that tie in at all with your experience? Oh, absolutely. Um, in a novel, I can... Uh, or just a short story, whatever it is, mm. I can introduce exactly as much of the world as I need to for that story. And in truth, there doesn't need to be a damn bit more than what is actually there. Yeah. Uh, in, in a game setting, I actually need to have a lot there because I don't know how it's going to be introduced. Uh, I might not be able to introduce it exactly on the terms that I want to introduce it as. Uh, because it's kind of up to the whim of the the players uh, to ask the right questions 
and at least be paying attention and um, all, all of that. In, in my story, I can have my character say exactly what I want and respond exactly how I want. And I can tell the, the audience the information I need to, and I can get out and it's concise and it's precise. And the truth is I didn't actually need to know more than what I said. Uh, so very, very different. And as we've mentioned, Seth has recently been doing this new podcast, The Modern Mythos, with John Hook. And we are very pleased to be joined by John. So hello, John. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Scott. We've spoken a little bit about the podcast so far, but I think it's worth doubling back and covering a few of the same points, because obviously I want to hear your side of it uh, now as well. So I, how did this whole thing come about? You're, you're doing this, what, I think, is it monthly at this stage or bi-weekly podcast called Modern Mythos? Yeah, monthly. We're going to we're gonna release, the plan is to release monthly, uh, but we wanted to record a few episodes and then just put out a you know, an initial dump of a bunch of episodes just to kind of get people uh, accustomed to the new format and the new show and everything. So uh, Seth and I are actually, we're going to be recording our fourth episode soon, and that will come out um, late in um, June. So how did this thing come about? Because obviously we know you from the Miskatonic University podcast, but you know, this is, is this your second podcast now? It is, yeah. Uh, it, the Miskatonic University podcast was the first podcast I, I ever uh, was on, or, or really kind of helmed uh, with uh, Dan and Murph, and um, you know, eventually we had Chad and then Dave. Um, so it's awesome. I love the Miskatonic University mm -hmm. podcast, uh, and just you know, having that legacy and you know, being a part of that show. Um, but I've also been trying to balance my writing and trying to get more writing done. And I recognized that I was having a difficult time, uh, writing as well as doing a, uh, bi-monthly podcast. So mm. the, the real intent, because I, I really enjoy the uh, podcast forum and, and having these conversations because selfishly it, it helps me be creative right i i'll talk about things with my friends on the air and go hmm that was pretty good i need to write that yes. down and and so i work those yeah. into my writing so you know i still love doing the podcasting but i i needed to kind of slow it down a little bit and that's why uh by design i am choosing to do a just once monthly uh, podcast and, um, that is giving me the time I need to, to, you know, split and do some more additional writing. So, and also Seth was explaining this a bit earlier, but the focus of the podcast seems to be slightly different than the MU podcast as well, because it's not just a call of Cthulhu podcast, but also you're not covering news or new releases or anything like that, that it's much more of a, I don't know, a timeless thing. Is that right? Yeah, that was another point, too, is I really wanted the episodes to be evergreen. Um, mm. uh, I didn't want to cover news or, you know, the latest Kickstarter or something uh, because 
then it becomes anchored in that point in time. And if you try to come back to the episodes and listen to them five years on or 10 years on, um, uh, the news for one would be pointless um, and historic uh, and, and probably not of, uh, of interest for that listener in that time period, you know, five years, 10 years or, or more down the line. So I did want the episodes to be kind of evergreen. Um, I'm sure we'll, we'll get tripped up on that a little bit because uh, I would like to uh, cover products, you know, some new products that come out uh, so, you know, I'm sure there'll be instances where those episodes might feel a little bit anchored in time, but hopefully because it's less about the new release of a thing, it'll be more about here's a review of that thing. And yeah. that feels timeless because sometimes we do reviews of scenarios that are, you know, 40 years old they're still poignant to do them now that, you know, so I think that's, that will help them. So I don't know. It's a, it's a fine line to walk, but uh, yeah, I want these to be uh, timeless and I want them to focus on what our strengths are. You know, Seth being a a novelist uh, as well as, you know, a uh, creator for, for scenarios and stuff. I think he brings a unique perspective uh, for the discipline of writing and uh, that kind of thing. And I have my own uh, strengths and, and perspective. So I think together um, it, it could be some hopefully helpful advice. One of the things whenever uh, people have, have ever talked to me about, you know, talking with other game masters and whatnot is I've said, it's like the, the, the best compliment I can ever say of how well I agree with a game master would be, we are completely in line 98% because <laughs> if, if you're 100%, it's boring. And, yes. uh, and so and John has a lot more experience gaming than I do. I mean, yeah, I've been playing a long time, but he's been playing since, you know, the stone age. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but he has his different experiences and his different strengths and his different everything than me. So he, he will talk about stuff from a very different angle than I do. And we have very different approaches to stuff. And that is, that is wonderful uh, because it allows for the discussion because we can even see, well, my way is not actually the best way. It's the best for me. What's the best for you? And then we can kind of learn from each other or at least have an interesting conversation rather than a lecture. Uh, and, and I really enjoy that uh, because, you know, he, we did a, a one recently where he talked about uh, influential adventures and he was talking about like comic book adventures and stuff. And it's like, okay, I have no experience here. Mm -hmm. You have, you are now an authority on this to me and you're now enlightening me on stuff. I had no idea about. Um, and that's fun. I enjoy that. So how is it the two of you ended up working together on this project? Well, we have the same parole officer. No, um, <laughs> I was going to say the bar was closing and I was tipsy <laughs> and he approached me and said he liked my shoes. <laughs> now, you know, I, I, uh, 
you know, I, 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 I really conceived and, and, and thought about this new podcast and I, and I knew I didn't want it to be just me talking. It, it really, mm. it does help to have multiple voices. Oh God. Yes. Honestly, I'm just, I was already such a fan of Seth's videos, you know, his YouTube series. And we interviewed Seth on the Miskatonic University podcast. Seth and I uh, gamed online together. Uh, and, you know, we're both uh, native Texans and have similar uh, uh, background in, in uh, East Texas, you know, that, that region of Texas. I don't know. It just, uh, um, the friendship seemed pretty natural. So when I was looking to start this podcast, I was like, man, I really wonder if Seth would be interested. And so I contacted him and, uh, and laid out my, my, you know, uh, plan as far as how to, uh, manage and produce the, uh, the podcast. And he was like, yeah, I could work with that. I was like, all right, let's do it. On a side note, real fast, and I have to share this because I don't. I, I, I've mentioned this to Scott. I don't know if I mentioned this to you, John. When I, when I first started reading a lot of scenarios, and a lot of the authors are are just names. I don't know anything about them other than their name. And sometimes their name that pops up more than once, and I like that name because they write good stuff. Uh, Scott did a scenario called uh, uh, "Was it Hell in Texas?" Was that the yes. was that the title for for yeah. Stygian Fox? Have you read this, John? I haven't read it. It takes place in East Texas Hell House. Now, you know what that is because <laughs> you, 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 I assume you do. I grew up in East Texas. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm intimately familiar. So I'm reading this and, and Scott's details are so good. I'm like, son of a bitch, this guy's a local. <laughs> I, I know nothing about him. I, he's an East Texas boy. He has to be. There's no way he's not. And then I, I, I hear his voice. Like, that is not the accent I was, I was expecting. I Hey, everybody, I'm Scott Norwood. I write for Call of Cthulhu. That was not the accent that came out of his mouth. <laughs> and it's because Murph uh, yeah. helped him with a lot of the information because yes. I was absolutely duped. Of like, oh, Scott's a local boy. I wonder if we know some of the same people. <laughs> no, he's not a local boy. <laughs> <laughs> no, Murph, Murph saved so many things on that. I, I, I sent him the manuscript after I finished the first draft, and he was just going through saying, no, we don't do that in Texas. Oh, God, no, no, this is wrong. This is wrong. No, we don't call them that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, he, he transformed it. <laughs> So I don't think I've ever said that in like any episode of any podcast ever of when I used to think Scott Dorr was an East Texas boy, because there was no way, no way that that was not from a local. I definitely want to hear Scott's East Texas drawl for sure. <laughs> oh, go. God. <laughs> I, I do not do accents. I, I, I have no facility for them. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I, I have totally lost my train. <laughs> derailed love it yeah, yeah. mission accomplished oh, it has left the station and it's never coming back <laughs> so for anyone who hasn't listened to the modern mythos yet how would you pitch it how would you describe it to your potential audience i guess i would describe it as a podcast where we are going to try and focus on um creation the writing aspect uh of the writing of scenarios and then also the uh, running of the game. So as a keeper, uh, taking the, the written material, 
and interpreting it for your table. It, it doesn't have to be a direct uh, translation of what was written and play that, but find the nuances that are that are going to be attractive to your players, especially if you are playing with your regular group and you know what their likes and dislikes are. You can modify these scenarios and uh, tailor make them for your table. I mean, we have to remember Mm -hmm. that uh, these scenarios are written for an audience of one. You know, when we, when we write the scenario, it is meant only for the game master. And then the game master becomes the lens in which that game is then brought to the table. And the game master needs to be able to take the, the stuff that's been written and, uh, recognize what pieces are uh, stronger and would work better at their table, what pieces might not be uh, as uh, strong for their table. And it can, and those elements can be different from table to table. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, it might be things like changing settings, modifying uh, uh, the hook, the, the, the hook, modifying the villains, you know, things like that. So, uh, modifying, uh, you know, and it kind of can not, not always, but it can skew into things like, uh, lines and veils too. Right. So you want to know what is going to be, uh, working for your table. You know, if you already know that there are certain horrors, uh, that are too visceral for your table, uh, don't wait for your player to throw up the X card, you're the lens, modify it and uh, try and tailor it so that it will be, be palatable, but also uh, it'll still be a fun game for your players. But again, you know, that's what I think the podcast is going to try and aim for is uh, helping would be creators to be, uh, give them the confidence to be more creative and avenues uh, and advice on how to do that creation process, but then also for the game masters to uh, make the game more playable for their table. And, and of course, we'll also have player advice too, but uh, Seth is the master of that with his YouTube series for sure. Yeah. But you know, like I said, there's so much, you have to have a back and forth. Uh, yeah. Uh, venue because if I did it by myself on my videos, it's a lecture. And the problem is, it would sound like I'm saying it's the only way. Hmm. I, I need a conversation to show that no, it's clearly not the only way. Um, and I think that is one of the big strengths is John's got a ton of experience, and he can he can stand his ground on where he's coming from on his, and I can stand mine on where I'm coming from on ours, and we can civilly talk about how they're both right <laughs> and. Um, and we can have a lot of fun. And and John laughs at my bad jokes, so that keeps me coming back. <laughs> I, and also, I mean, what's the GM advice you offer? I mean, when you're picking scenarios apart, like, you know, as you did particularly in the third episode, it's it's not just you know customizing them to your group. I mean, one thing you did, Seth, when you in the third episode when you talk about one of my scenarios, Blackwater Creek, is I've seen this in other uh, videos as well that you've done, which is <laughs> you have a both a very useful and a sometimes quite upsetting knack for going through and finding all the things that should have been in there but weren't, <laughs> and then just filling in all those details. The number of times I've I've watched one of your videos where you've talked about something I've written and I thought, why didn't I think of that? I have failed. And that's the thing. Uh, 
I am still waiting for somebody to to do the Skorkowski treatment on one of my scenarios now that I've had uh, two published ones out there. And one day when I get to talk about my others, that will be out one freaking day, but that's all I'm allowed to say on those. Um, and I can't wait for somebody to just eviscerate me on, on like, oh man, that's such a good idea. Why didn't I think about that? But, you know, that's just the nature of it. And, you know, uh, it's part of why, what I think I, I like about this. I can throw out these ideas and then you can, mm-hmm. if you ever see comments, people that'll say, Oh, that'll be cool. And that'll be good. And then more people jump in and then they do that. Um, at the end of the day, they're still going to run out and they're still going to pick that scenario up and they're all going to you know, do it. And they're all going to have a blast. And now, you've just pulled the creative juices of God knows how many voices from the internet to, to make a good thing even mm-hmm. better. And I God, I would have killed for that back in the early days when, you know, I, I picked up a oh, God, yeah. dragon magazine or whatnot. It's like, okay, let me figure out how to run this. Uh, if I had had the, the collective experience of the internet to suddenly throw out like, 15 amazing ideas as well as a, you need to be real careful here because it can go sideways real fast. Uh, if, <laughs> instead of learning the hard way, like I did. Yeah. And also it's the fact that, I mean, I mean, this applies to both of you when you're talking about scenarios, you're talking about ones that you've run and that you've got intimate knowledge of. And I think that's a really important aspect of not just reviewing, but also offering the kind of advice that you are here in that I have seen too many people on the internet sort of saying, oh, I've read this scenario and here's everything that's wrong with it or here's my opinion or whatever. And I mean, they've not run it and they're just hypothetically looking at the things that might happen during play without any experience, but you're bringing actual experience uh, to the discussion. And and that's actually one of the big things uh, John and I did have to talk about because you know, he brought up he wants to do reviews, which is cool. That's in my wheelhouse. But I, I have a very strict, I want to play it before I can actually mm. call it a review. There's a first impression, which is a type of review, and those actually do serve a very good function, but those are first impression reviews versus a, a review. Yeah. And when I first started working on my, my reviews, I went out and I kind of looked at what other people might have said about it. And, or um, if I was looking at running a game, I was like, oh, what, what do people say about it? And I came across several very early on for certain scenarios or even systems that it was very obvious the person writing it had never played it. Yeah. Because they focused on things that weren't actually problems. Like, like oh, yeah, there's a typo here. And they talk about a typo or something for like three paragraphs. That's yes. <laughs> like, if you're going to talk about typos in this review, then if it's that light, then you clearly don't have anything else to talk about. But then they would miss something that is very obvious once you begin playing it. A lot of problems and a lot of gold isn't obvious until it's actually getting run. And that's mm-hmm. when things reveal themselves. Um, I've also had it in games. There were rules that I thought were wonky until I ran them. Uh, Call of Cthulhu just chase rules. Oh man, before I read that or ran that and I read it, I was like, what the hell is this nonsense? Runs great. But yeah. I had read reviews by people that had clearly read it and never run it and they hated it. And then I read mm-hmm. reviews by people that had run it and they liked it. Um, 
so that actually became kind of a just pedestal. It was like, no, or a soapbox of like, I will always have to do this because mm-hmm. the people that either uh, talk crap about stuff that I loved when I could tell they clearly hadn't run it, <laughs> yeah. angered me so bad. Uh, <laughs> there's actually one, I think it was like one for Pulp Cthulhu. A guy gave this eviscerating review of Pulp Cthulhu. And I think Pulp Cthulhu is just the bee's knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it was one of those like, but he was clear he hadn't run it. And that just made me so mad because yeah. I expect my, my car, you know, reviewer to have driven the car and my movie reviewer to have seen the movie. Um, yeah. I expect my game reviewer to have played the game. Yeah. And I think it's very odd that we don't have that as a more, more of a standard. Yeah. I guess it's a difficult balance to hit sometimes because if you're reviewing something, I mean, I guess if it's a, a film or a book, it's comparatively quick to watch it or read it and then have the information you need to review it. But but for a game, you know, you're for a start reading it and then running it and possibly more than once and putting together your impressions, and it's a much more time-consuming thing for what is a much more niche product and if you're looking at it purely from a a commercial point of view if you're writing this stuff for money i guess it doesn't pay to do that oh no especially if you're playing it's like well now you gotta you gotta work the schedules out with three or four or five other people uh in order to do it so it's not just your time and now you gotta take up the time of all these other people but you know it's a game you need to play the game so obviously, as you said, you've recorded a number of episodes together now. Do you ever actually get to game together? Well, we have gamed once, and we have a plan to uh, game again. Uh, so one of my favorite uh, new scenarios is uh, uh, Chris Lackey's The Code. Oh, right, yes. Out of the volume one of Mansions of Madness. Yeah. I love that game. In fact, um, uh, you know, spoiler, I will be running it for the next uh, Good Friends Con uh, in August. Oh, fantastic. I need to sign up, but I am I am now committing myself by saying it publicly. I will be running the code um, at the Good Friends Con. In addition, I'm, I'm sure I'll be running some other things as well. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to put my feet to the fire and, and do that. We'll just say for anyone who's listening, that's happening between the 20th and the 22nd of August. So we won't pin you down on an exact slot yet, John, but, but you know, sometime between those days. Yes. Don't know the exact slot, but it will be that weekend. Fantastic. And so I am going to run uh, Seth and some of his friends through that, but we did play. What did we play? You wrote it. Yeah. I don't remember. <laughs> You've written so many scenarios, you don't even remember the names of them anymore. I don't, I don't remember what we what we ran. It was it's the one in the Providence in the hotel, Shadow of a Providence. Yeah, yeah, Shadow of a Providence. Shadow of Providence. Thank, yeah, thank you, Scott, who didn't write it or play it under John, but is the only one of us that could remember the title. Yep. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I have played it, just not with John. No. Oh. And I had a great character in that one. I had the Sydney Green Street character. I got really into the voice, and John killed my oh, ass. Man. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. That was fun. And uh, and Seth's wife is uh, is now uh, a vile villain prowling through uh, Providence at this time. Brilliant. 
Oh. It was wonderful. <laughs> now, one thing I enjoyed about that is, uh, so John uh, ran uh, myself, my wife, and uh, a good friend of ours, and we've played together for decades. So we, uh, I very rarely get to play with them. I'm always their GM. We have our dynamic, and we have our, our levels of humor. And John's the new guy. And John's face half the time of just how gross out humor we like to get. And he's like, <laughs> he's trying to be very delicate. I've never played with these people before. And I, and I forgot what was my wife said at one point. And John's like, I, am I allowed to, am I allowed to laugh at this stuff? It's like, oh, dude, welcome to the Thunderdome. We're, we've been playing together for 20 years. <laughs> Yeah, once we got past that, it it was uh, it was a lot more fun, and uh, I was able to because I love I love body horror, and uh, and so mm. when as a keeper, I love to describe body horror. It's just one of my sick joys, and uh, oh, so yes. I like to try and describe sights and smells and sounds and just all the uh, all the um, input that your characters are having from these. Uh, scenes and uh yeah that that got to be a lot of fun one thing actually seth and i were talking about earlier that relates to that is the difference between the experience of running for pretty much the same people over a very long period of time and running for lots of different groups i with your own personal experience john do you tend to play with the same people most of the time i I know you do a lot of stuff at conventions and online i is is your situation more like Seth's though, where you, you've been playing with the same people for decades, or or more like mine, where you never know who you're playing with from one week to the next? Yeah, uh, most of the time I don't know who my players are going to be, um, hmm. or I'll have similar players or players that I've worked with before, but the that group's dynamics are different because they're shuffled. Um, I, I do not have yet, uh, but I think something is starting to brew, but I do not have a local group that I play with yet. So uh, four years, even pre-pandemic, um, my gameplay was either online or at physical conventions, and I'm getting a wide variety of different players at different times. Hmm. I have not as yet uh, had a player have to use an X card. Uh, but I also, you know, even though I, I try and and I enjoy, you know, the, the body horror and stuff, most of the horror that I try to bring to a table is, um, I think of it as movie horror. You know, so uh, the, you know slasher you know sci-fi fantasy kind of you know horror things which while it's over the top and it can be you know it might be uh, maybe sometimes gross or something like that what what i don't normally do or the types of buttons that i don't normally press on uh in my games is i don't try and press on horror that is personal to people. Um, I Mm. don't bring in um, loss of children or um, uh, the horror of uh, rape or, you know, I don't want, I don't want things that are uh, 
realistic uh, like yeah. that in my games. I normally try to uh, to go with um, cinematic, you know, ridiculous, uh, non-human kind of horror, so that since my I know my players are here to play a horror game. So far, it's it's worked for me where it doesn't matter if I'm playing with uh, people that I'm intimately familiar with and I've been playing with for years, or I just met them at this convention. Um, the type of horror games that I like to uh, present as a game master have been so far um, universally accepted. You know, so uh, hopefully, if I can't, that that's a I see, I see game groups that are long-term and, and intimately familiar with each other, as I believe Seth's group is, you know, they play in person, uh, and they've been playing with, ye- you know, for years that really allows an opportunity to go that deeper level in horror that I don't normally go to, you know, I, I stay in the shallow end of the pool where it's, um, you know, obvious Mm. and, uh, doesn't touch on, uh, on the real root of, of emotion other than, you know, fear and shock or whatever. Um, but Seth, I think with his, you know, being able to play with a long-standing group, they have had the opportunity to explore those boundaries before and can go to those deeper levels where you get real uh, depth of, of uh, personal horror because that's, that's where the real fear oh, yeah. lies. And um, I haven't had the opportunity to get, to go to those levels because I don't have a uh, long term, long term standing, you know, playing groups. I mean, it's interesting you're saying about avoiding uh, things that that might be genuinely upsetting to people. For me, the only thing that I'll never put into a game is sexual violence of any kind. I, I just know I've known too many people who've been on the receiving end of it, and I know that having it turn up in a game is going to you know, make it a bad time for an awful lot of people out there. Uh, so, and it's also something I've got no interest about exploring in a game myself. So it's, that's always off the table, but I, yeah, I will put just about anything else in there and, you know, including some, some really quite potentially upsetting things. And I've run games at conventions for 20 years and in all that time, I have not, maybe it's because people are too polite, but I've not had anyone shut down a game or use an X card or anything because of any of those things. My experience is that you can bring in a lot of really dark stuff like that, even in games with strangers. And if they know what they've signed up for, if you give them the warning, it's generally okay. I, th- I think one of the most important aspects is, is one, there's the communication like, hey guys, we're going to go here. But two, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. How how it is presented, and there, uh, if if it is presented appropriately, uh, people can handle a lot of stuff, uh, even if it is touching on issues they might have. Unless it's like mm-hmm. a super hot hot one, they can still take it. If it is not handled well, 
it is a disaster. And, oh God, yes. Uh, yeah, and, and both of you, since both of you've been like doing con games and all this, you've kind of gotten that that system down of I'm going to approach this in a way that is not gratuitous. Um, yeah. Which I, I guess is if if you want to talk about mature subjects, we should talk about it maturely. And if if you present it in a way that this enhances the fun versus is just shock or tasteless, um, that's the big difference uh, to me. Because I I think you could probably do any subject well, which means there are a few subjects you can't do very easily well uh, <laughs> without it becoming a disaster on your hands. But it, then there's also just the, the open communication before and during uh, the game and then how how it's treated. If, if you treat it respectfully, uh, people tend to be a lot more receptive to it than um, standoffish if they trust that you will treat it respectfully. So we touched upon a few things there that you don't necessarily want in your games. What What do you think it is that makes for a particularly good, well, let's say, Call of Cthulhu scenario. I think uh, players who are playing Call of Cthulhu really enjoy uh, exploring different aspects of the mythos. Hands down, they mm. want to see they want to see aspects of the mythos in a variety of different ways. So um, it could be um, new takes on the ghouls. It could be new takes on the deep ones, but they, they enjoy having um, experiences that uh, while not exactly the same, but something that they can compare against some of the literature as well and say, Oh yeah, the deep ones chased us through the town too. But instead we were going (laughs) through the sewers or it was on a boat or there were deep ones on a plane. I mean, they, they want, they want to have uh, that mythos uh, experience that they can kind of compare it to. And, um, and just kind of as a, as a mirror, set it up against the, uh, the literature. And so that's, that's fun for me as a writer is to, uh, take that which is familiar and make it unfamiliar and new. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I've, I'm on a deep one kick right now where I just <laughs> want to uh, explore a variety of different deep ones, a variety of different uh, deep one weapons. You know, uh, I don't want my deep ones to only attack with my tooth and claw. I I want them to uh, pull from a satchel that's over their shoulder an urchin that they slightly squish and crunch the urchin (laughs) and throw it. And then it becomes an urchin grenade and these poison needles fly out like shrapnel, you know? Oh, nice. Um, I, you know, I want, you know, them to draw a, uh, a coral forged sword. So you've got that (laughs) sharp coral and they're just starting you know, hacking at them with a a coral sword. I mean, I want uh, to bring a different experience to the deep ones and still have the players go, Oh my God. Yeah. We faced deep ones too. It was awful. And this is what happened, you know, and, (laughs) and be able to compare it to, uh, to the stories as well. Oh, nice. I'm actually going to disagree with John here. 
Oh, what a surprise. I think the mythos is a, is a good backdrop and it's a good starting point, but I think what they want more than the, the correlation with the, the original literatures and all that is the strange and unknown in a world that doesn't accept the strange and the unknown. And that's what made Lovecraft really powerful mm -hmm. uh, to me. It's like you know, Shadow of Rensmith. I'll always refer back to that because that is my favorite. I've got the, we have the same deep ones fetish um, <laughs> of, you know, this town and it's, it's got the secret and it just kind of like you, you peel back layers and it just gets worse and worse and worse. But this is just a town down the street from where you live or, or, or whatnot. I, I, I think that this is a wonderful foundation to work with, but I also don't think anyone should ever feel that if it doesn't have the Memphis, it's not. Um, one of the, the, the old, like original scenarios that I, I always like to tout is the rescue uh, from like 1982. It's about werewolves. There's not a mm, single damn bit of Memphis in it. Uh, it's, it's a werewolves. And because before those became a very mainstreamy thing, Werewolves are looked at the same way we would look at, at, at deep ones or ghouls or all that. This kind of unknown monster from, you know, that they, they could be one of us. And, you know, now I'm with werewolves are in everything. Um, so I think it's that unknown that really pulls it off. And then as a benefit to keep it fresh. Because once that something like the Deep Ones becomes known, it loses that. So then you add a different aspect, and then you add a different interpretation, or then you add something entirely new. But as long as it has that, that mystery and that strangeness, and that the players aren't completely familiar with it, and the characters belong to this world where that's not really accepted as a thing that exists, um, that to me is the appeal. One of the nice things about Call of Cthulhu is that both of those are true, that there is the mythos and there's all these established elements. And, well, for a start, a lot of these things are new to new players. But even beyond that, that, you know, as you say, John, you can reinvent them in interesting ways. But it's also a playground in which you can create new stuff. And, well, I mean, when we were trying to pin down the appeal of Call of Cthulhu a while back on The Good Friends, one of the things that we kept going back to was its versatility. The fact that it can be, you know, all things to all players. What is it that keeps the two of you coming back to Call of Cthulhu? For me, Call of Cthulhu, the game and, and the, the mystery and, you know, Lovecraft's uh, literature, it just, it's fun. I, I find it fun, mm. you know, but I like uh, horror and I enjoy the thrill of uh, exploring horror, you know? So for me, it's fun. That's what brings me back. From a purely mechanical standpoint, the the game mechanics of, of Call of Cthulhu, especially 7th edition, is, is truly one of the most elegant RPGs I've ever read. Um, I absolutely love introducing people that are new to gaming with Call of Cthulhu because it's like, Okay, guys, there's no math. You you roll below this number, it means this. If you get below this, it's clearly marked right there, so you don't have to remember it's this and it's that. There's no mm. uh, non-skill penalty 
you have a little bit in everything, the skills that your character has are just kind of bonuses to the foundation that we all start with. Uh, I like games where they're fragile. I, I love games that you are a, a squishy person instead of a superhero or demigod or something. But the, the rules mechanics of, of Call of Cthulhu will always bring me back no matter what, because they are so simple and so just elegant. I love them. But the added benefit, I love investigation. I love the mystery. I, you know, when, when I got into Call of Cthulhu, I read a lot more Lovecraft, but I also started reading a lot more Agatha Christie too. Hmm. Um, you know, and I got more into the setup of, of a good investigation story because that is the other big appeal that it gets. It's not just uh, kicking down the door and killing the bad guy. There is, you find this clue and this is a game that encourages, and then you hand them a piece of paper that looks like an old newspaper article. And then your, your, <laughs> your players are, you know, kind of piecing together these little tidbits out of it. And the game is designed to really take advantage of those aspects. Um, that to me is the big, big appeal. Uh, even over other games that use the, the, the Lovecraftian elements or horror, I will always come back to the fact that 7th edition as a system is so damn good that, <laughs> uh, and I can do so much with it at the same time, but it's still simple mm. that uh, I'm always going to be in love with it. I'm going to change my answer to Seth's. <laughs> <laughs> The trick is you let the other one answer first, and then you're like, okay, how can I improve on that? <laughs> oh, shit, I just told you that. Damn. <laughs> was that out loud? Damn, that was out loud. Now, obviously, one of the things you're doing on the podcast as well is offering GM advice. What bit of GM advice do you wish someone had given you back when you were first starting out? All of it. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, it's the, it's the, don't be afraid to change. You know, you mm -hmm. are the lens for your table. Look at the scenario, you know, be familiar, read it thoroughly, know the beats, know how you want to uh, unfold each scene. And, um, don't be afraid to make a change that will, uh, be more fun for you and your players, you know? So that's the real advice, I think, is to to just make it your own. I'm, I'm still trying to limit it to one, man. Um, I, 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 you can give more than one answer if you want. Just don't give a better answer than mine. Sorry, I'm about to expand on your answer. Because <laughs> <laughs> I love copying off the person next to me. Um, I'm going to expand on don't be afraid to change is even stretch out way outside your comfort zones uh, to look at other games to look at other ways of running the game that you have, you know, to bust out props one day to, uh, just go for it. You know, it, it took me years before I was comfortable talking in stupid voices and I'm like, no, I feel like a dork, you know, like, no, just go for it. And once you embrace it, everybody loves it, but <laughs> that don't be afraid to change. Just keep it fresh. Keep it exciting keep exploring everything and, and, and build on, on everything you have. So that's my expansion of John's. 
One of the ones that I think was the hardest lesson for me is uh, as a GM to understand that I am simultaneously the most and the least important person in the room mm-hmm. that it is in no way about me. I am the entertainer. Yes. It is about the players and I have to trust my players will take care of me in order for me to keep running them. <laughs> but when I was starting off and I was still approaching it with, I guess a very, uh, with an ego or an idea of, I want this to be fun for me. And my, my enjoyment was the big thing that I focused on. Uh, man, I, I, I wish older me could come back in the time machine and go like, just, that's not it. That's not the secret. <laughs> um, that's one of the big things I always try to explain to people and, you based off responses I get, I guess is like either worded that wrong or you are so new. You don't understand that that's actually it is the GM is uh, the ringmaster, but they are not the star in any way. Uh, yeah. It's always the players that are number one. I always liked Ron Edwards's description in, I think it was in sorcery. It might've been an article he posted on the forge where he was talking about the GM as being like the bass player in a band that it's your job basically to set the tempo and, you know, create the space in which everyone else can do awesome things, but you're there just sort of being steady, keeping the tempo, keeping it going. Yeah. Um, but yeah, whenever I talk about like GM mistakes, Oh yeah. The reason I can point out GM mistakes is I have made almost every single one in the books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Even, even the horror ones. Oh yeah. I, oh, I, yeah. I'm not going to specify which ones I've done them all. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, there's a ton of advice. I wish I, 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 I could have known or at least understood. Uh, it saved me a lot of hell. <laughs> saved my players a lot of hell too. <laughs> I think one of the best ways to run a good game is to run dozens of shitty ones first. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, like 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 any form of creation, there's a there's a hundred failures before that that first good one. Yeah. Or at least there's a hundred failures before that first good one can be recreated again. Yes. And on the converse side, what is the worst piece of GM advice you've ever heard? The worst one I can imagine is for the for the GM to ignore the lead that the players are trying to give them, you know, uh, mm-hmm. by wanting to go in, you know, go down that alleyway to explore uh, what's down that alleyway, where instead the GM is like, uh, you know what, that alleyway is completely blocked. Really, the only way out of here is to keep going up the street. Um, <laughs> where that weird light is down the way, you know, and just, just forcing, that's the worst thing you can do is, is, uh, trying, because you're trying to be beholden to what was possibly written on the, uh, on the paper of the adventure and just force the players to, to stay on that path, uh, or to do what, what you think as the game master, what you think is the, uh, next logical step. Yeah, that's the worst thing is, you know, the best, really, the best advice is follow the lead of your players and, and whatever they want to mm-hmm. do, adapt to that. Yeah. How about you, Seth? Uh, for me, and, and this is stuff that I've, I've, I've encountered on different forums or different comments that I've gotten on videos, is the idea of, uh, with horror, 
to try to traumatize the players yes. instead of the characters. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that that is a very dangerous way to approach it. And I think your success rate is a lot better if you go after the characters instead of the players. That way everybody has fun. Mm -hmm. Um when I talked about that in, 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 in a video on how to run horror, I had uh, not many, a few, but the, 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 the squeaky wheels, you know, you notice those. Uh, mm -hmm. When I basically I acknowledged that stuff like X guards and lines and veils are a thing that exists. Uh, the just venomous response that some people yeah. had toward uh, that, uh, including some manifesto rant where a guy talked about like, well, you know, if they basically, if they made it through my session zero and they don't know what it is, they're never allowed to come back and say, Oh, there's something that I hadn't ever thought about. Like I'll just kick him out of the game after that. I was like, you know, I was really like, well, you're a, you're a horrible sounding asshole. Uh, yeah. but, but he was very much of, it's open season on the players and if they have a problem with it, that's their problem mm. is, is, is probably the, the, the worst uh, that I've encountered. I'm sure there's a lot worse out there. <laughs> that's mm, for me. I've, I've seen that attitude too many times. Like you say, if, if anyone mentions lines and veils, it's always, well, you know, I, I demand that my players be strong enough to cope with anything I throw at them. And it's sort of, yeah, we're supposed to be doing this as, as fun, not as some kind of abstract test of machismo. It's just, what the fuck do you think you're doing at the table? We're a bunch of adults doing fun time imagination, you know, <laughs> in our free time. We might, let's just let's just admit what we are. Uh, so th there's no need for this uh, machismo, but. I think a lot of it is from it's coming from perspectives of people that are not used to playing with varying groups of people. Yeah, uh, I fully admit when when I was first introduced to the the concept of X guards, and I'm coming as like I've played with the exact same people for 20 years. Occasionally, we have to bring in a new one because an old one leaves, uh, and that's literally all I played. I, I hadn't even played as a player at a convention. Uh, it was the, well, that sounds stupid. And it wasn't until I was able to sit back and go, okay, there are people that play differently than me. There are people that go to a game shop and they play with total strangers or they go on roll 20 and there's a board on roll 20. And now you're in a room of people and you just met and now you're playing whatever or a convention, a thousand other situations that is damn beautiful for them. So therefore I don't have a problem with them at all. They're just not anything that I've had to use, but that doesn't mean that they're bad. Uh, and I think a lot of the people that are, are so venomous about it will come up with these hypothetical horror stories or ones that they're not made for anyway. Uh, yes. They're, they dislike them because they don't have a use for them, but that doesn't mean they're not useful. I don't have a, a, a use personally or a need for uh, uh, a lot of the, the disabled things to get into a building, whether it be ramps or the different types of ways to open the doors, but that doesn't mean that I think they should be done away with and they're pointless. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the same thing. It's like, it's, this isn't for me. I'm glad it's there for somebody else, but I don't, I don't need it myself. That doesn't make it bad. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. You said that you're recording again fairly soon. So what is next in the pipeline for you? Can you talk about stuff that you have planned uh, in upcoming episodes? So we are going to record an episode soon. We're going to try and cover a couple of different topics in our next episode. Uh, One, which I'm really excited about. I love this topic idea, which is using other game mechanics and kind of porting them into Call of Cthulhu. So, you know, Mm -hmm. what kind of lessons can we as uh, game masters and, and writers have we, can we learn from other games and, and maybe kind of, fit some things like that into our call of cthulhu games and uh, so we have a variety mm. of things uh about that that we want to cover and uh and then uh, some folks might be really unfamiliar with some of the uh uh some of the period settings that call of cthulhu really excels at i mean it's it's a uh, it is a game where we typically play in other time periods, you know, the 1920s mm. or Victorian London, that kind of thing. And so uh, we're going to cover uh, areas where you can uh, get inspiration for your, for your period set games. Yeah. A, a, a question that we, we've both in, in, encountered in just different forms or mediums is, you know, players are like, I know nothing about the 1920s and I don't want to just sit on Wikipedia. And, and, and yeah. like, how do I, how do I get this down? Or how do I get Victorian London down? You know, I've never been out of, you know, whatever town I live in, in, in the U S uh, I, I know nothing about England, let alone Victorian England. So mm-hmm. kind of ways where this is how you can get really all you need for the game out down and have it be fun. Um, because those are the methods that I did and uh, I'm sure John did as well. So that's, that's going to be a fun talk. I'm looking forward to that one. Yeah. That's a really good one because I remember when I first started playing call of Cthulhu almost 40 years ago, I knew nothing about the 1920s. I knew what there was in the box set. There was that little booklet that covered uh, period detail. But apart from that, when I, Perhaps picked up a few things from the movies, but uh, it was so intimidating to suddenly be running this historical game. And I just, I, I was convinced that everyone else would know more than I do about this and they'd just be laughing at all the stuff I got wrong. Uh, yeah, I think trying to make that a, a more comfortable experience for new keepers is a fantastic goal. I'm just going to walk away with a bunch of movie recommendations from John. So that's why I'm looking forward to it. And outside the podcast, uh, is there any work that either of you have got in the pipeline or uh, that has come out recently that you'd like people to know about? Chiasm has already announced a, uh, a new source book uh, that'll be coming out soon. Uh, centered on uh, 1920s Baltimore, which has a, I didn't even realize that Baltimore, Maryland had a cool nickname for the town called mob town. Wow. Sounds awesome. Right. So I think the source book will have that in the title is mob town. And uh, so I wrote one of the, uh, one of the scenarios that'll be included 
uh, in that source book, um, as well as the, uh, uh, the author of the entire project, uh, Evan Perlman oh, right, wrote yes. the uh, book and uh, Bridget Jeffries. Ah. Uh, she also has a, a scenario included in that. So that'll be coming soon. I just don't know when. Um, and uh, yeah, I have uh, I have some things I'm trying to work on D and D wise. I'm I'm doing. I love um, the OSR uh, style game Swords and Wizardry. Oh yeah, from uh, Frog God Games. So I have a lot of fun with that, and I'm going to do a little bit more writing with that, and uh, just other Call of Cthulhu projects. You know, whenever I can. Uh, knuckle down and and do the writing (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's the tricky part isn't it it is the tricky part (laughs) how about you seth i guess at this point it's like two months so it's not even new but my my first uh scenario for traveler came out um back in march i'm finally about to get my hands on the print copy for the first time i can't wait for that um and that was at it was originally a 1980s scenario called Murder in Arcturus Station. It's a brilliant mystery scenario, which isn't a game that's not known for mystery scenarios. And um, it needs a prequel. So uh, mm. there, there was kind of like a half page one that was in a magazine back in 82, if you're lucky enough to find it, that really wasn't that good. So I, I read the, the original module. So then I contacted uh, Mongoose. And I kind of, kind of Snyder cut it. I kind of like, hey guys, I need you to, I need you to, I need you to reprint this, and I'll, I'll write your uh, prequel for you. And I said, okay, well, if you uh, put yourself in charge of the update of editions for this scenario and approve it, my like, deal. So I've got my first uh, traveler scenario out. Uh, it's a nice. two-parter. One of them is mine, and the other is the uh, my remake of the original um, called Mysteries of Arcturus Station. Um, future wise, I don't think I have a single project in the pipeline that I am allowed to talk about. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) That does happen. (laughs) I have some, that's all I can say. (laughs) But we did touch upon your most recent novel as well. Bashes of Onyx. Uh, That's been out for how long now? About a year? Well, it, it came out like right about the time the pandemic hit. Um, mm. So it came out in uh, January of 2020. That was uh, not a good time to try to promote it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> that is, uh, it is a standalone novel uh, that is a little bit of urban fantasy, a little uh, portal, a little horror, uh, pulls in a lot of the King and Yellow uh, mythology. Uh, I became a Joan Jett fan out of reading, writing that book. Uh, <laughs> no, true story. And I now know a lot about Joan Jett that I never knew oh, um, that, that I wrote. And, um, and that's, that's out in, in print and ebook and audio book. And uh, that's, that's my baby. It's weird, but um, yeah. But, but oh yeah. Yeah. It got has addiction issues, which yeah, that's really weird when your parents read that and they're like, "Why did she have to be a drug addict?" Like, because it was a good story. <laughs> I am, if I can jump in, I am reading Ashes Vonix right now. I only have a third. I'm two thirds of the way through. I only have a third of the way to go, and it is a fantastic novel. 
Uh, I'm not going to give anything away, but it is mm. awesome. And as someone who enjoys uh, Mythos literature, uh, it totally fits in that realm. I mean, uh, the the aspects of Carcosa uh, and just the 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 chase that's going on and the way that our main character Kate is growing uh, is so awesome. I, I, it's a great character and I'm loving the journey that she's on both the emotional and literal physical journey that she's going on. Um, it is a lot of fun. Uh, and there is, like you said, a portal, there's a lot of, of, uh, ethereal travel and i love the way that you describe if i could guess i just love the way that you describe the hazards of of traveling through the ether and the the different things that live out there and that could uh, uh sniff you out and 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 chase you down as you're trying to whisk your way from planet to planet so it's mm. pretty freaking awesome i'm loving this book so <laughs> I'm going to give you five thumbs up. All right. Go on. I, I, I take these compliments all day. <laughs> oh yeah. Take take <laughs> Wait till you're done. <laughs> I will say when, when uh, my editor actually did the, the actual final edits of the books with me, when, when she reached out to me, she's like, I, I love Kate. She's such a, a, a wonderful train wreck. I was like, Oh, you and I are going to work together. Great. <laughs> that's, that's what I want you to say. So, cause yeah, she's a very broken character. Yeah. I listened to the audiobook of that and, and it's, it's very well narrated as well. I, you know, the, you, you lucked out on the narrator there though. I, I will say that it is a cruel author who makes an American narrator try to do Scots accents. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, like one of them is like Scottish, but like Slavic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Nate know. is Slavic Scottish. Yeah. And that all had to do with when my my wife and I went to Edinburgh. We hung out at this bar every night. That was these Polish girls that learned to speak English in Scotland. They were very yeah. pretty. So impossible to understand anything they said because they, <laughs> you know, they they spoke Polish, and now they spoke Scottish flavored English. <laughs> so, but it was like. Why your accent's so impossible to to really pin down? <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been fantastic talking to you. Uh, I don't know how the hell I'm going to edit all this together, but we'll see. Uh, but thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for some very entertaining and informative answers. And I best of luck with modern mythos what i've listened to so far has been fantastic i'm really looking forward to hearing what you do next i've had a blast <laughs> oh thank you scott i i had a great time and i apologize for being late <laughs> well i'm looking forward to seeing uh, or hearing what we do too uh I, I, right now i still think john and i were i think we're still figuring out exactly uh what all we can do uh mm -hmm. and i think once we get a little bit more really used to each other. We're probably going to start springing in a few different directions that we can't even see yet. Uh, mm. And I look forward to that a lot. Um, basically, once we get through that initial list of ideas of episodes and we're sitting there going, what the hell do we come up with for the next one? I think that's when the magic is really going to like totally flower of like, 
let's do this. Um, <laughs> but no, this was fun. I, I enjoy the heck out of this. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com I wasn't going to mention you being late in this, but seeing as you've done that. <laughs> so very late. I was going to leave it a complete mystery while you joined us partway through. I was hoping you were just editing just weird background noises. You know, just <laughs> like like toilet flushings and whatnot. So it's like you just think, say, is John okay the whole time? Uh, <laughs> Migo, Migo buzzing. Me go buzzing. I finally got my brain back out of the jar. <laughs>